one of my scariest things is like, you know what? This is as good as you're ever going to be. Like you are never going to be smarter, faster, more able to make an impact on the world. Through that fear, I've had to be like, well, what do I do with that? Because it could be debilitating, right? And I'm like, you know what I'm going to do with that? I'm going to learn. And I'm going to get really good at learning. And there is so much wisdom out there through interactions with people, through the internet. I've really tried to keep that like lifelong learning. And, you know, there's not a lot of things that I'm like, gosh, you know, I'm pretty good at this or I'm pretty good at that. But I've tried to get pretty good at learning. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. If you enjoy the pod, the best way to show your support is by leaving a review. Thanks. We're in this office looking out over an immaculate view. This is like not much smaller than my apartment. This office that we're in, this beautiful view. What a place. I can't believe this. When you came here, you were living in the Bay, right? I was living in the Bay, yeah. And when you came down here for the first time, we're in the building that you came down in Santa Barbara, in the adjacent to Santa Barbara, but for my sake, Santa Barbara. When you came down here for the first time, this was the only building. This was the only building we had, yeah. And when you came to this building, were you like... How is anyone going to work here? <laughs> Whoa! Like, like, my thing is like, this is unbelievable. This is almost so unbelievable. Am I the only person that didn't know that this is one of the best kept secrets in technology? This is insane. Uh, you know, I think we've won some awards for our campus. And, you know, for us, I think we've focused a lot on employee experience. And so to your comment, of like, how is anyone going to work here? I mean, they're going to really enjoy this place. And nature is such a big contributor to productivity that we were just really fortunate. We were able to get an office and eventually a campus. Uh, there's five buildings here now all overlooking the bluffs. And it's special. It really is. It's unbelievable. And I come in here and I thought it was maybe a, a welcome reception for me or whatever. No, I'm just kidding. But there's like hundreds of people in the lawn here eating Mexican food. What is that? We've been doing that since I joined and it's Wednesday lunch. And so it's an opportunity for everyone to get together, including the executives. So we all get out there and we spend time with employees. And for Procore, look, especially when I joined now, it's a little bit of a different story, but we weren't winning because people wanted to work in construction software. And so we figured out how can we win on the experience, on the relationships we can create and how can we leverage those relationships to drive winning? And food is one of the like simplest ways to build a relationship. And so for us, it was strategic. It wasn't just like, let's go get the coolest campus we could ever get overlooking the ocean. Certainly also, you know, a lot of credit to our CEO. I mean, he has just had so much vision around like, no, we can create an absolutely exceptional experience because we're going to work really hard and we're going to do really hard things. So let's put ourselves in an environment that's absolutely awesome. So you've been doing this since you've been here. I've been doing this since I was here. Yeah. This lunch thing. We, we did it before me. I could take absolutely zero credit for that. We did it before me. In fact, I think if I'm going back in memory now, I think I came when I first was here interviewing on a Wednesday. Dude. It's, uh, it's all the same thing. Same thing. Same experience you did. It's, you're a, like, cheat it's <laughs> a cheat code. You're getting the royal treatment when you do that. Well, immediately when I walked up, I'm looking at the Vista. It's incredible. It's a 65 degree day. I'm in a t-shirt and there is like 150 people with Mexican music and this taco stand and they're all sitting there eating, talking about their jobs. Like I overheard somebody having a conversation about how this is her first tech job. And I'm like, 
oh my God, it's only downhill from here. <laughs> you know, it's funny you say that because the office we're in right now used to be my office. And I, you know, Procore, we have core values of openness, ownership, and optimism. And so I, I'm truly an optimist at heart, like love the Procore values. But gosh, I was like, yeah, I've probably office peaked. I'm not going to get a nicer office. And, you know, we had, I think, like lots of companies, the kind of great resignation. And we had a lot of folks who started their careers at Procore, went elsewhere, are now boomeranging back because I think they have realized, like, this place is special. And yeah, I'm very biased, obviously, but I love the environment we put ourselves and our employees in. It's sick. It is so, so sick. My first thought was no one's going to get it better than this location-wise. My next thought was, I wish when I was starting my career, I knew about this place and I could have been a BDR just working here. I don't know. Those are the only two thoughts that I had when I walked up. So anyway, thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. This is incredible. You probably did more prep. And by the way, there is no (laughs) prep to do. There is no prep to do for these shows. You didn't know a single question that I was going to ask you. And- The way that this podcast started, the reason that we got into this conversation in the first place, do you remember how it happened? Our specific or the Grit podcast as a whole? Our specific conversation. I think you reached out to me on LinkedIn. I did. And then I didn't respond for a while. That's For a while, at least a year. (laughs) you're playing hard to get no 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 i think like when you're doing a company like procore you know focus is so important and so hard and so i've just been very single-mindedly focused and yours was one of those outreaches where i'm like oh how lucky am i i've got to get back to jubin and kind of sat in this like parking lot make sure i do this make sure i do this and finally i was just like i've got to reach back out to this person and you know truthfully part of it is like dude i love the podcast i I mean i think like what you're trying to do You know, I was very fortunate that there were so much wisdom and literature being shared on scaling SaaS companies right as we were building Procore. And it wasn't out 10 years before we were building Procore, right? But I found over the years that what you're kind of sharing the lessons of is actually the hardest and most important thing to figure out, which is like the psychology of scale and like, how do you actually make it work? And I think you're so spot on that you get on stage and you take these awards and it seems like everything's perfect. You're like, it's hard. Mm -hmm. And so I felt sort of an obligation to like, I've learned from your podcast and your podcast is one of those like, gosh, I wish this would have been out there for me personally six years ago. And so I'm honored to be here and I promise you it was not hard to get. It was just a matter of timing and, you know, me being able to make it work. I appreciate you doing it. The night before you responded to me, I was having dinner with a guy that used to work for you, Dan Miller-Smith okay. from Watershed, and your name came up. And so maybe it was coincidence, maybe it was not. But anyway, we get on the phone, and I remember so distinctly, I'm walking around my apartment talking to you on the phone. And next thing I know, I think it was a 30-minute call. What you responded wasn't, by the way, Jubin, let's do it. I can't wait to be on the podcast. It was <laughs> something more along the lines of, hey, let's get to know each other. And then like maybe if there's a podcast there, there's a podcast there. So we start talking and what was a 30 minute call ended up being almost an hour of us just wrapping back and forth on all sorts of stuff, building companies, the psychology of it, all sorts of things that we talk about on the show. And eventually I was like, Dennis, we got to stop this right now. We got to record this on the pod. Like we have to do this together. So anyway, it's surreal that it's happening. Likewise, I feel the same way. It it was a great conversation. So I'm glad it led to this. I'm curious. I got to know because like you're a prep maniac, like you can't help yourself. (laughs) You you can't help yourself. How many episodes 
did you listen to between us booking this and me coming down, do you think? You know, I started listening to them while I was running, I don't know, maybe a dozen, okay. probably more than that. Okay. Is there anything when you're running and listening to these and then reflecting back on some of the guests that we've had on, are there any things that stand out to you? Like lowest common denominator or threads amongst all of the guests that you're like, you know, they all kind of have this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious. Well, so first off, I love your question because that's actually the inquiry I go through in a lot of different dimensions, including looking at this podcast. I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean, here are the greats of industry and here are them sharing their personal stories on how they made it work. What's consistent across all of them? And I certainly found there were a lot of consistencies. I mean, not to play on the show too much, but every single one of them had grit and talked about not only how they had it, but how they've cultivated and developed it. All of them showed up with a curiosity and energy of presence that I was like, gosh, that's rad. I'd love to spend some time with them. And so I certainly did find that there was quite a bit of commonality when you look at like lowest common denominator. Yeah. And I love this thread you're on. Because that's been the way I've like learned, you know, and been like, gosh, can I find the greats? And then can I listen to 10 of them? And yeah, they might not agree on everything, but they usually agree on 60, 70, 80% of it. Yeah. And then that just becomes an easy thing to be of like, okay, well, let me see how good I do at those things. Yeah. The depth and breadth of guests you have and how they show up was just very clear. They have grit. They have humility. They're smart. They're learning. They care about people. They love work. Like they love what they do. I mean, all of that came across very clearly. When we were talking over the phone, you posed not too dissimilar of a question to me. What was crazy about the first phone call that we had was that I felt like I was on the dentist podcast. <laughs> okay, that wasn't my I, intent. I, I, because, and you couldn't help yourself where we got to know each other and then very quickly you started asking me to basically pattern match what are some of the things that I'm seeing and learning? And I think one of the questions you asked me was, what does winning look like for all these people? How are they all winning? Some variation of that. And I just remember thinking, he cannot help himself but learn. You couldn't help yourself but basically get into my brain and just start like excavating for knowledge. Have you always been that way? I'm not sure if I've always been that way, but certainly I can't recall a time in the last since I was a teenager that I wasn't. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't, I don't think I was that way as a kid, but I, I certainly think from teenage years on, yeah, I've just found... One of my scariest things is like, you know what? This is as good as you're ever going to be. Like you are never going to be smarter, faster, more able to make an impact on the world. And so, you know, through that fear, I've had to be like, what do I do with that? Because it could be debilitating, right? And I'm like, you know what I'm going to do with that? I'm going to learn and I'm going to get really good at learning. And there is so much wisdom out there through interactions with people, through the internet. I've really tried to keep that like lifelong learning. And, you know, there's not a lot of things that I'm like, gosh, I'm pretty good at this or I'm pretty good at that. But I've tried to get pretty good at learning. When you feel that way, can you describe that panic to me of maybe I'll rephrase the question. Have I plateaued? Is this it? I'm curious, what does that feel like internally? 
terrible. <laughs> you know, like it's, um, you know, and I've lived it in different ways, right? You know, like one of those things that I would wish to share for others is like, find really your why and find really like the stuff you absolutely love. Because often the things that you might be chasing, thinking it will be that, you know, and for me, it was like, I want to be ahead of sales or I want to realize this level of wealth or like, I want to have scaled a business as amount. Like you get there and you're like, gosh, that's not the thing. Uh Oh, what is the thing? And so, you know, I think I've gotten a lot better about this over the years. And I've noticed quite a number of your guests talk about this, that kind of the tuning of the instrument and you get less sort of sporadic or, you know, the highs and lows become less varied. The standard deviations become less. Yeah. And so for me, when I get that feeling now, I feel like I've built a much better way to manage it. You know, so if I go back, I'm like, well, what was that feeling like 15 years ago? I mean, it felt terrible. You know, it was almost one of those like, (gasps) Gosh, okay. And now, you know, I've learned to kind of embrace that and to lean into that. And I've learned that like my opportunity is like, what do I do with that feeling? Because I have the feeling. So I don't want to shut it down. I don't want to pretend it's not there. But, you know, it's kind of like the pressure of performing in the job. You know, it's like, okay, so there's a lot of that pressure. So am I going to use it to make me better? Am I going to use it to keep me hungry? Or am I going to use it in a way that doesn't serve me? And yeah. I've tried to get much more aware, like, nah, that doesn't serve me. Yeah. What happens if you plateau in your head? If this is it, if in fact you have peaked, then what? I found that in my life, I try to bring a lot of happiness and joy I haven't really figured out satisfaction. Yeah. You know, I said it to a friend once where they were like, what are you working on now? It's like satiety. And they're like, I don't understand what that means. I'm like, sorry, I use big words, but like, I should just be grateful for what I have and be present in this moment. They're like, oh gosh, yeah, you need help on that. Yeah. And so, you know, for me, the fear comes from like, I feel so lucky. You know, I was in a, born in the Soviet Union. I'm an immigrant. Like my story is one of like hard work for sure, but more luck than anything. And I just want to be able to use that to make the world a better place. And so what really starts spinning through my head is like, gosh, but there's so much more you could have done for the world. Now you won't because this is your peak. Yeah. I literally go to therapy for this. Like, I feel like I'm in my own therapy office right now. And the thing that I have realized going through this insecurity of plateauing is your point earlier. Exactly. Like, I realized like it's the best thing that I could have. I just need to know when it's there. And how to apply it positively instead of it sometimes showing up as like debilitating anxiety, as this horrific fear that I'm going to be nobody and nothing and no one's going to care about me. For a while, I tried to fight that feeling where I was like, you know what? It doesn't matter. If I plateau now, that's fine. I should be more present. It's just not me. It's just not who I am. I don't know how else to explain it. I battle with it too. So I could very much relate to you there. Do you find though that when you see these particularly exceptional, successful people, not that, you know, that's me, but when you see those people, do you find that they tend to have some of this anxiety? Ali Godzi, the Databricks founder, he's like very insecure. Like he also immigrated from Iran. And at any point, he was telling me how Today, Databricks, it's like a, what, $40 billion, maybe one of the most important private companies in the world. He is terrified that it's all gone tomorrow. Terrified. And you can't really teach that. It's certainly not healthy. You know, (laughs) it's, it's definitely not productive for his health, but it's good for the business. It pushes the business in a way where it's very paranoid. 
And I struggle with this idea because so many of my guests are so high achieving, so paranoid. Really, it comes from like a place of deep insecurity. And I used to kind of admire the work, but as I've unpacked them, I realize I share so much of that. And a lot of the things that we share, I don't actually like about myself. Like it's the thing that tortures me. I don't know if that makes sense. It makes so much sense. And so, you know, my own journey has been like, how do I reframe this? Because one, that like endless pursuit of like, I could have done better. This wasn't enough. That creates greatness, right? And so human potential is so profound. I mean, you look at through thousands of years what humans have overcome and you're like, gosh, I could do better. And so like my own journey has been almost, before it was a lot on like, all right, I don't like this about myself and like, I don't know what to do with this. This is just crushing. Like, I'm just gonna, blah. And okay, so how do I leverage the magic on this and how do I take away what I don't like? And so, you know, what I don't like about that anxiousness, that paranoia is when it's not productive and there's nothing I can do about it and I'm just spinning and people feel that energy and they feel that effect. What I love about it is I believe in people's potential. I see the greatness. I see the opportunity to get better. And I'm going to put so much passion and energy, I think, as you've observed, towards learning to do that. I've learned that so much of life for me personally has been like, what are you going to do with that situation? And one of the things you have the most amount of control, though it's not easy, is how do you react or how do you respond? What I admire about many of these folks is how they've channeled that energy. And I think what can suck about it that you yourself know, and certainly I know, is like, I don't like how it feels. And certainly, you know, like feelings can be contagious. And if I get that out and that starts to spread, like that's not going to actually do the thing I want, which is to get better and make an impact. Yeah. On the point that you made about not productive, do you have any tells? Do you have any signals or feelings when you know that you should be discarding this one versus maybe acknowledging the other one? Because they feel so similar sometimes. You know, I think it's actually not that I stifle the feeling. I think I get very quickly to be like, yeah, I've ruminated enough on this and like I've given it some space, but I don't want to give it more space. And, you know, I've more found a way to let it be there, but to sort of refocus. And I do simple things, truthfully. I'm like, okay, you know what? I'm going to go for a walk. And as I'm going on the walk, in addition to this feeling of like, I didn't do this well and I didn't do that well. And like, I got to be so much better here and faster and more and all that. I'm like, cool. All right. So what is one thing I want to get faster and do more of? And how do I chunk that out even more? And like, okay, I'm feeling anxious again about that. Like, cool, bring it. I'm going to use that even more to get more excited about trying to get better at this thing. And so I've tried to almost reframe it and chunk it out and actually channel that same energy. I don't think the energy flow changes, but I think the way I manifest it and channel it changes, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does make sense. I'm just not convinced, and I wonder if you are, that you can decouple those two feelings. And maybe that's just a very myopic worldview where I speak for myself and therefore project that on everybody else. But I have not seen very many examples of people that are incredibly high achieving incredibly productive that don't have this, it's like a tickle of urgency, but it's not like a good tickle that makes you smile and laugh all the time. You know, it's just like this thing that's always there and it just pushes you and it pushes you. And I don't know, everyone has it from different places. One of the key ones that I was just saying that I see is it comes from insecurity, but you can get it from a bunch of different places. But I always see that. 
in people. Well, I, I mean, and feel free, you're driving, shift the conversation at any moment you'd like, but you got to know the difference between what things you can change and which ones you can't. And for myself, like there are a whole host of things that if we're talking about like specifically about anxiety that help. Now, they may not solve the root cause issue, which is important to understand and, you know, work through the insecurity and I'm never good enough and, you know, whatever happened in my childhood and all those things. But I think it's pretty clear that like, hey, if you do certain birth work, it can make you less anxious. Sleep is your friend. And so I've just found a peace and almost like a joy of like, can I change this? Maybe I'll do that work to try to be less anxious to, you know, try to not have that bad tickle on the other end. Like it's there. So if I can't change it, I'm just going to be at peace with it. Yeah. But in fairness, and tell me if you think I'm wrong, if we were sitting down at this table, when this room was your office eight, nine years ago, would you be able to answer that question the same way? No, I think this is, you know, one of those things I wish I would have heard on a podcast, you know, five, <laughs> six, seven, eight years ago. And I did hear it from mentors, right? You know, so like imposter syndrome was something that like I continue to struggle with, right? Like I'm just so lucky to get to be where I am. And part of what drives me is like, I'm just aware of how much talent exists out in the world, right? And so it wasn't on a podcast because this information wasn't out there. But I started talking to different mentors and they're like, yeah, dude, I have it too. I'm like, What? And all of a sudden it starts to become more normalized and you're like, you have it too? What do you do with it? I was like, well, uh, you know, some of them, you know, especially, you know, more private conversations can be like, well, I definitely don't let it do to me what it's been doing to you. And so, no, I think it took me a few years, you know, at Procore to like really settle in and be like, you know what? Imposter syndrome probably can't change it. Also, perspective is really powerful. I mean, you look and it's pick your CEO today and, you know, Databricks CEO, he hasn't run a company of that size and scale. Mark Benioff, right, was at Oracle before he wasn't a CEO. And every year, Salesforce is bigger and more complicated facing to Yeah, And so, you know, the convergence for me that I have now that I didn't have then, and I still struggle with this. So don't let me like sit here and be like, oh, yeah, I've nailed it is again, it goes back to like, what am I going to do with that? So this is the situation. Now my opportunity is what I do with it. And then I've gotten a lot of comfort and perspective that, you know, again, is much more out there today because of shows like yours and just people's comfort talking about mental health that wasn't out there six, seven, eight years ago. So no, had to answer your question in a yes, no fashion. No. Yeah. Had you come in here my first three, six months at Procore? No, I was a mess. <laughs> you know, Like, absolutely. And no, this isn't the vibes and the message you would have got for me. So you were born in the Soviet Union. Your parents immigrated here? We immigrated here, yeah. So I was five, yeah. You were five. Do you think that your parents also have that feeling of approaching a plateau and never wanting to and some of the stuff that we were just talking about where, you know, like where you want more, where you want to be better, where you want to achieve? Do you think they have that? And did you feel like you learned that? How'd that come up? You know, I don't know if the fear of plateau is a good question. So I'm probably going to go back and ask my parents that because I've learned I can learn a lot about myself through my parents. I've also come to appreciate how different my two parents are. Yeah. You know, certainly what I learned was the kind of paranoia from my parents. Right. I mean, if you look at the Soviet Union and you look at the history there, it was a hard place to be. And I certainly learned that from my parents. And that's something that I bring, you know, the amount of contingency planning I do to make sure Procore would hit its numbers or we would do right by our customers or I would be able to succeed and, you know, whatever I was doing is a lot. And that I for sure learned from my parents. Yeah. I don't even know if you knew this was on the Internet, but there is a quote from you went to Berkeley. 
There's a quote from a Berkeley magazine that quotes you. <laughs> it says, this is you talking. Last night, I slept for four hours. Then I got two hours today, says Leandris, 20, an all-nighter veteran. He's made them a regular part of his study routine. The way Leandris, am I saying your last yeah, name right? uh, We say it, people by family say it differently. Leandris, Leandris, both are great. Okay. The way an honor student sees it, the nights are his only option to keep up with the volumes of material that have come with each class. And then, back to you in quotes. I know how horrible it is, what I'm doing to my body, he says, but I don't have a choice. There's just too much material. And in talking with people in your life, they could have said that exact quote about 25-year-old Dennis and 30-year-old Dennis and 40-year-old Dennis. I don't even know if you're 40 yet, but pretty much every age of Dennis, I think, was such a consistent pattern. That feeling of like, look, I know this is bad. I know this is even a little masochistic, like the way that I'm working, but like, this is the price that I'm paying to get the work done. It's always been there, hasn't it? It's certainly been there since Berkeley. It was, for me, probably the first place that I looked and was just like, oh my gosh, I mean, every single person here is exceptionally smart. And, you know, I was, I think, as obsessive about winning there then as I am now. You know, though, I I would hope that actually over the last one to three years, that that is much less so. And I think like that was the story I told myself. And like when I really try to be intellectually honest and as I've studied so much more about human performance and human potential, I, I would actually be proud today to tell you that, you know, I sleep eight, nine hours every night and I've built a really good sleep ritual. And I've come to find that, you know, if I want to play long game, And I want to be operating over a very long horizon of time, which I think is the best way to make a really big effect on the world, then I can't just keep burning both ends of the candle. And so, no, I didn't know that was out there. Good on you on your research that, you know, I I, I would say, though, your synthesis is correct, probably leading up to a year or two. And I think that's one of the biggest things I've changed my mind about is, you know, for me, one way I used to, you know, justify it to myself was like, you know what, the mission's more important than the human. Right. And so, yeah, you're going to sacrifice and you're going to stay up all night and you're going to keep cranking and cranking and cranking. By the way, I I since come to feel pretty confident that staying up all night doesn't actually help your cognition. So you get better grades at Berkeley or whatever I'm doing. But at the time, I felt that for many years, I felt that. And I've since come to find a better balance that is like, well, I as a human matter as part of this mission. And in order for me to really be successful at the mission, because part of the mission is how you do things. And it's like, gosh, if that's what I'm teaching the next generation, like bummer on me. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so I would say that that has been true. You know, certainly if you talk to Dan Miller Smith and we haven't worked together in some number of years, I wouldn't expect him to say anything but that. But I do think folks that have worked with me more recently are like, you know what? Like there's someone who's like really tried to figure out better habits and behaviors yeah. who has like tried to understand like, is that really peak performance Or was that what he was telling himself? Yeah, that makes sense. Can you talk about who Mike Fernandez is? Oh, gosh. Mike is one of my favorite people on the planet. uh, I'm almost curious to ask if you talk to him. No. Mike was the managing partner I worked for in my first job out of college. And he has been one of the most impactful people. It's funny you say that because you asked for references. And Mike was one of the ones I was like, I should have given him Mike. To your comment on like spitting and, you know, try to think about things and reflect on him. And he was a magical human. 
I mean, he had been a for-profit entrepreneur, a non-profit entrepreneur. He had sort of taken me under his wing, really, in the first like 30, 90 days of my tenure there. And I learned a lot from him. And, you know, I'd maybe lead you to wherever you want to inquire. But, you know, Mike still to this day is a friend and mentor. I just caught up with him about a month ago. And actually, you know, it's funny how the universe works. The Spirit of the Grip podcast. I thought about texting you a photo. He's uh, building a business right now and he's the CEO of the company. And I'm an investor in it. Uh, could not just, you know, betting on Mike and, uh, you know, and he sent me the investor update. It literally said 2022 blood, sweat and tears equal joy. And I was like, gosh, you know, talk about someone who's figured out a way to enjoy the ride. And I'm happy to share anything and everything on Mike. He is a magical human. Once you graduated under the tutelage, tutelage, I'm not sure how you say it, but kind of under his guidance, you then went off to go do a few different technology jobs in sales. Went to Pentaho. Is that how you say it? You know, it's funny. Uh, we said Pentaho, okay. uh, but Pentaho, I think, is how a large majority of folks say it. Then you went to Cloudera, spent a couple of years there. Can you tell me the story? First of all, for those that don't know what I'm still baffled by, might be one of the best kept secrets in technology companies. Give me the 30 seconds. What is Procore? Procore is a leading platform for construction. So our vision is to improve the lives of everyone in construction. And we do that through a mission of connecting everyone on a global platform. And we've got a suite of products that enables you to build buildings. And so, you know, we said more simply in some of our marketing before, like we build the software that builds the world. Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating to me, all public now, but almost 3,000 employees, seven and a half billion dollar market. This is like a no joke company. This is a no joke company. It's a monster. It raised its first funding round in May of 2004. Mm -hmm. Then its next round, it's, I'm, and these are all kind of like in air quotes, it's Series B in January of 2007. Series C, January of 2010. And this is cumulatively less than like five, six million dollars. Then in 2014, 10 years after it got its first funding, Bessemer raised a 15 plus million dollar round. Did you come in around that time? What was the timing of that? I joined right after the Bessemer round, yeah. Can you talk about how you found this place? Uh, you know, I was lucky. My brother had actually worked at Bessemer, and so he was an investment professional there, and he had helped invest in Procore, and he had joined the company. And then I came down shortly after to visit my brother and just check out what he was doing. And, you know, I was at Cloudera. And for those of you know, folks that, you know, kind of following the chronology of that, like at the time I was at Cloudera, like Cloudera was the hottest company. I was fortunate that like I came down, I visited my brother and, you know, truthfully, like I fell in love with the CEO. I fell in love with the company's values. And the CEO who is still, I mean, look, we if you want to spend a moment on Tui, I mean, his story of grit, his story of building something special is unlike all these years later, and I try to meet as many of the greats that I can. I mean, he is still one of the most gifted, amazing humans I've ever even shaken a hand with. It was the it company. It was it was it. I mean, we had yeah, we had <laughs> just raised, I think it was the second largest venture financing in history. It was almost a billion dollars. Some of it was secondary, uh, which I later learned, but the headlines at the time yeah. were second largest. Yeah. You know, we were dreaming of, you know, acquiring Oracle or IBM. And we thought, like, you know, there's only so many seminal shifts in technology, you know, in the mainframe and cloud, and big data was the next one. And we were it. And not only that, but like I couldn't have been happier at Cloudera. 
You know, like I loved my teams. I was learning a ton. We had just knocked down Intel as a distribution. There were, you know, a lot of competitors and quickly they were starting to fall. And it was clear that this was going to be a big market and we could potentially win. I'm huge on mentorship, right? I remember the feeling of calling my mentors and being like, hey, so I think I might want to join this company Procore. You know, I had one better mentor in particular was so great. He's like, Dennis, when you left Pentaho, did they do a lot to try to keep you? I was like, yeah. I was like, are they doing pretty well now? I was like, yeah. He's like, remember when you joined Cloudera, what I told you? Yeah. You told me to just stick it out, highs and lows, do a five, 10 year run. Those are the most impressive, valuable people. Don't be the person that jumps around. The grass isn't greener. Very few companies are going to make it. And I was like, yeah, I remember all that. He's like, so do we need to keep having this conversation? And so I didn't have a single mentor. Not a single one. You know, and I think even in my family, they were like, so uh, do we need to double down on this? You know, your brother just got there and, you know, like that could be a complicated relationship. And like, if that doesn't work out, that would be really bad. And like, we we're such a close family. Like I have a sister and cousins and like we got together every weekend. And so it was like, and you're going to move for this company? You're going to go and they hadn't been to Santa Barbara, but I had been here. And I was like, yeah, but Hey, you know, parents, like, I really appreciate you bringing me to the States and like California is special and the Bay Area is even more special, in my opinion, especially for technology. But uh, this place is really good. And so, yeah, I mean, I was at Cloudera, you know, I saw this thing Procore and it was one of those like, well, I love the values more than anything. I love the CEO. And, you know, for me, he was really good at figuring out like a pain point. And he was like, so, you know, the thing that really drew me to Procore. And that's why I, we're not on video, but I, I kind of had this joyful smile when you're like, I wish I would have known about this place. I could have been a BDR here is, you know, my sentiment was like, gosh, the bar for sales and marketing actually isn't that high. People don't usually expect that like the sales reps awesome. And internally, those cultures, you know, they're not ones of like one team, one dream and we win together. And Tui was like, hey, man, you can keep doing the Silicon Valley thing. And like, that's a thing. Or you could come here and I believe in you and I can tell you think you might have more to give and you can run your own show. You can do it the way you want to do it. And so it was like really one of those like, well, the openness, ownership, optimism values, like those were really true. They really drew me in and we still hire and do everything to the values to this day. CEO is magical, totally an emotional decision, probably too much ego of like, I just want to build my own thing and probably one of the harder decisions I've had. How long did it take? Honest answer before you had your first oh shit moment? <laughs> Maybe an hour. <laughs> like, it was very quick. Very quick. And yeah. what was the, like, was the oh shit moment more, what have I done moving to a new city? What have I done working with my brother? What have I done not even knowing what to diligence on this company and now seeing what's actually happening? What have I done trying to run the show when you have imposter syndrome and you're like, I can't run the show. You know, what was the first one? There were two that kind of hit me right at once. So I don't know which one came, but they both came kind of within an hour of each other. One was product, right? And so when I was looking at Procore, there was this like, you know, we're going to build the most amazing freemium model and this drawing tool. And, you know, we had this offering, it was called Current Set. And I found out all of a sudden, I'm like, wait, Current sets the freemium thing, but we're also trying to build this drawing thing. And those are separate code bases and there's no conversion path. And like, oh, 
what do you mean? Like, this is the way we're going to win. Right. And then in parallel, when I joined Procore, they had five sales reps and all of them were homegrown from customer support. And there was a lot of merit in thinking to this, right? Because we're vertical SaaS and people have to know the industry and they have to know the product. And let's just say I didn't feel like the reps really loved me. You know, I'm kind of coming in. I'm like, so we're getting territories and quotas and cop plans. And they were like, who brought this guy here? And I remember, you know, having this conversation with a particular rep and he was like, look, here's the thing, bud. And, you know, they had had a couple of heads of sales before me, right, that hadn't really worked out. And so to them, I was just like, the next guy is going to be here for, you know, 90 days. And, you know, let's get him out quick because this guy seems pretty aggressive. You know, he was like, look, we sell projects, not subscriptions. Like, what? What do you mean? Like, yeah, yeah, this is a project-driven industry, dude. So, like, I know you don't know the industry and, like, Silicon Valley and, you know, you worked in mergers and acquisitions and all that's awesome. But, uh, yeah, projects. And I'm not selling subscriptions. So, I've already heard you're trying to make sure, you know, that we're a subscription business. And I was just like, shoot, okay, so the product that I thought we were going to strike, you know, rich off of, like, well, it's kind of a freemium solution that, you know, I don't know how that's going to work, especially, you know, migrating it onto a paid version and separate code bases. And then right alongside that, I'm like, so, you know, not really feeling the love. And also, like, what do you mean? Like, you know, it was very clear in 2014 that, you know, consumption models hadn't yet been kind of the thing. But subscription certainly was right. I mean, 2014, like venture investors, in order to get your next financing round, they weren't like, how much individual transactional project (laughs) revenue do you have? Uh, And so that, that was like in my first hour. That was like, oh, shoot, you know. And then came the like customer contracts to sign. And I was like. Uh oh. <laughs> like, hey, uh, that was all like the first hour. I'm really curious. When you go home that night, what do you do? Like, what is your instinct? Are you like, oh my God, I got to go for a walk and take my mind completely off of this? Or did you pour yourself into checklist, problem solving, prioritizing, then moving through and finding solutions to those problems? You know, I think it was more I got to go for a walk and remind myself that like you made a commitment. The only way you're going to really figure out what you're able to do and whether you actually have an ability to build something is to take something that might not be even where you thought it was. And so it was more like an internal pep talk of like, you know what, quit tomorrow. And it's all about what you're going to do with it. And Cloudera had told me they were like, hey, like it's probably not going to work out and you're welcome back. (laughs) You know, and so there's a little bit of like... Hmm, I wonder if the role I gave up is still open or if they they've had backfilled me with uh, some of the folks on my team. So, you know, it was much more like don't quit. And then after that pep talk was the like, all right, I got to figure it out. Let's go. The conventional wisdom in venture is if a business is even just a few years old and hasn't found traction, let alone 10 years old and is now just starting to inflect, like there must be something wrong. Now, I think we're seeing exceptions to the rule, which generally are the home runs, right? Figma is actually a good example. It took a long time to get that thing going. I'm curious, when you came here, what did that mean for the culture of Procore? Having been a 10-year grind just to then get its first real institutional big investor, especially having come from tech companies, knowing what that culture looks like. Procore's culture has been one of grit, right? And I was able to understand why now versus why not before. And truthfully, and I would share this to other folks looking at potential opportunities, the fact that Tui had been through hard times, had still figured out how to stay afloat, 
had never done wrong by any of his customers or his people in those years, even though those were like some dark years, right? I mean, Tui was trying to sell construction software before there was Wi-Fi on the job site, right? And so he's like trying to convince these people to change. And so, you know, I think, and let me know if this isn't answering your question, the Bessemer financing was something that was celebrated. It was something that really made the folks who had been here who had built this a tremendous amount of pride that one of the best investors in the world had really recognized. Did it feel like a winning culture? It felt like a culture that wouldn't lose. They just kept at it. You Mm -hmm. know, you couldn't kill them. The reason that I ask is because when you've been around for so long and it takes 10 years to inflect, often there isn't a pre-existing winning culture there. You know, it's a survival culture in a lot of ways. And in some ways, it was almost like Procore had to wait for the market to catch up to what this technology was doing. To your point, like there had to be Wi-Fi on the construction sites so that people could use the software in a meaningful way. And again, hindsight's twenty twenty. But if you were doing it again, how much would you focus on, okay, we need to infuse a winning culture here. How much would it be, okay, we need to find the right people who are winners. How much of it would be product, like you mentioned? Like, how would you do that again? Well, you know, in addition to Wi-Fi being more prevalent on the job site, I mean, I wouldn't underweight the magnitude of mobile. And I think Procore's story of success, I mean, our product is freaking exceptional. And I think that it was very clear then what product we needed to build, right? Like that's not one of the harder things in vertical software is like, hey, what do our customers need? The hard part is executing and building it. And, you know, I think Tui is, uh, he's got a lot of grit and a survivor and a don't lose mindset, but he is sure as heck a dreamer and we got to win. And I think the beginning and end of every opportunity we've had at Procore is people and culture. And so absolutely to, I think, the inference from your question, I showed up and I was like, well, this needs to be a culture of absolutely winning. This needs to be a culture of like, you're never going to get what you don't really set out to try to achieve and do. And so we set out to achieve, to have the absolute best product and to absolutely be a differentiated sales and marketing team. And that was really clear from my first day. And like, truthfully, that was very clear to me that Tui had that in him. And it was one of the things that made me fall in love with him, which was like, wow, here's a human who in the hardest of times, he's not going to quit. He's an awesome person. He's done no wrong. But in parallel, like this guy's not okay just surviving. Like he absolutely wants to thrive. And, you know, I think this is consistent across a lot of founder CEOs is they too are always looking and they know all the imperfections. They know all the things that could be better. They know how much more they could do to solve customer problems. And they don't really sit still. So I didn't have that concern that like, hey, we weren't going to be able to create a culture of winning. And part of it is maybe just my own overcompensation, because I think one thing you may have come across with me that, you know, even in our first conversation, I'm like, hey, so winning, let's talk about what makes winning happen. And so I think that like Tui and I had an aligned vision and belief on that. And we showed up making sure that we do even more of that. And yeah, product matters. Product really, really matters. Outside of product, what else do you think defines winning? Well, I think even product comes off the back of leadership, people, culture, values, execution. So to me, to use the language you used earlier, like the lowest common denominator, lowest common denominator is still people, right? And then even within people, I think it's, you know, look, you can have an all-star player, that might not make an all-star team. 
And that's something we've been really, really focused at Procore is like, how do we partner with each other to create kind of a one plus one is three dynamic? And so for us, it was product plus go to market. Yeah. You started as the head of sales. You own the number. Four years later, you became the CRO, still own the number. You stepped down from that role and responsibility and you're, you're an advisor to the CEO. One of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you was because I can probably count on maybe two hands, but probably one. How many people have gone from, call it near single digit revenue to hundreds of millions of dollars and never got topped? You never got topped. That blows my mind because the conventional wisdom is that you bring in the adults in the room, in air quotes, to help you achieve the subsequent levels of scale that you've never seen before that somebody else has. How much was that on your mind? during this ride? Because it was probably pretty clear pretty quickly that this was going to be a ride. I showed up and Procore's growth, I take no credit for this, but certainly correlated, not causal, that I showed up and Procore's growth just went up and to the right. And it became very quick after we raised our next round from Iconic Capital that this was going to be something special, right? And that someone was going to build a massive company in this space. And so it was always on my mind. I think I tried to apply that same lesson. And, you know, certainly my last five years, I applied it better than my first three. And like, what do I do with that feeling? So to me, it's like another one of those, like, okay, so what am I going to do with this feeling? And then you also start to bring some intellectual curiosity. I'm like, so has everyone always gotten topped forever? And if they haven't, like, what did they do? And for the folks that did get topped, like, why? And also, like, I'm pretty selfless. If someone else comes in and they make this thing even more successful, like, that's rad. I'm also a shareholder. But for me, like, what I quickly came to appreciate was like, okay, so I didn't want to get top. This has been like the best ride I've ever had. And it was clear Procore was going to be successful. I was like, so what do I have to do in order to not get topped? And I mean, you're as good as your number, right? I mean, you've talked about this with so many different guests. And so I was like, okay, well, let's start there. Like, my mistakes. Don't ever miss your number. Right. Right. Start there. Well, and even if, look, even if you do miss, were you able to call the miss? Do you know why? And did you remediate it? Right. And if you did that, then, you know, maybe you get another quarter, right? Mm -hmm. You probably don't get three quarters. Yeah. And so for me, I was like, okay, well, look, here's what I can control, that the numbers are going to be absolutely exceptional, that I'm going to show a rate of learning and an ability to adapt and evolve that makes people feel like, you know what, this person can figure it out. And, you know, I think like I tried to just be a really awesome human about it and also give people the space. It's like, hey, if that's what we got to do, that's what we got to do. So, yeah. Can we spend some time talking about how Dennis learned what the next version of Dennis needed to be for Procore? Does the question make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Failure. (laughs) Failure. I was like, okay, so this isn't working, you know? And so I think like my evolution, you know, if I think back EVP of sales first year versus CRO, you know, last couple of years is it's all about leadership, right? And leadership isn't smartest person in the room, have the answers. And so, you know, for me, a lot of my evolution, like there was a moment, it was actually with SDR because, you know, I'd always built SDR teams. I'd even done it in mergers and acquisitions. We'd build like a cold calling team that was just sourcing deals. And I was like, I know a lot about this. And like, I should be awesome to my SDR leader. They should really like me because, hey, here's an area where I have the technical skill. You know, I can be super helpful. And I wasn't getting the outcome I wanted. I was like, you know what? Like, 
when I show up and I'm the person who like knows a lot about SDR and I'm up in their stuff and you know I'm kind of down and in SDR land, I'm not actually getting better outcome. I don't think I left that person wanting to do their best work. Also, you know, I started to quickly realize like all this stuff changes so fast that whatever I thought I knew about SDR probably wasn't the thing we needed to do, not just because the SDR world had evolved, but because we were a different company doing a different industry, trying to do a different set of things. And so I was like, oh, gosh, okay, so like this isn't how I win. So now how do I win? And, you know, I wish I would have had the clarity even before I joined Procore that like leadership is the most important thing to winning. Leadership is also exceptionally hard. And so you have this convergence for me of like, oh, shoot, there's this other thing that is way more important. And this thing is really hard. Like, I better start spending all my time on that. That was probably the biggest reinvention I had of like, you know what? It's not about being a sales leader and it's not about being the person who knows how to help us get to our numbers. I have to do that. That's important. But the most important thing is like, I'm an executive at the company first and foremost. We have a mission. We have customers. We have people. Like, how do I make them wildly successful? And the path to do that is leadership. How did you seek out what great leadership looked like? I started thinking about what terrible leadership looked like, truthfully. Um, And it was like, okay, you know, I'm not sure. You know, today I have a lot more clarity on like what great leadership looks like, right? It's inspirational. You're humble. All your success comes from the success of others. You're the teammate. You're the leader everyone wants to work with. You bring great energy and presence. You simplify problems. You're there for people in their hardest moments. Like all these things that I know now today that you can kind of hear me rattle off. Then though, to your question, I was like, I don't know what great leadership looks like. So let me start with what does terrible leadership look like? Right. And I just started going through all the different examples, whether it was publicly available or it was honestly, it was through my own experiences of like, I don't think it's binary. Right. So it's not like you're either a good leader or a bad leader. Right. It's like there's different aspects of leadership and people are good at different components of it and to different degrees and even in different situations. But I started thinking through like, okay, well, what were the leaders that got the best out of me? Right. Because that's so much of what leadership is. Like, how do I create a team that, you know, performs by getting the best out of people? And I started to quickly figure out patterns. You know, it was like, well, the leaders that like didn't really build trust with me, the leaders that like didn't really care about me as a human, didn't know what my hopes, my dreams, my fears were. Yeah, they didn't get the best out of me. Like, That's not a great leader. The leaders who I can't figure out what the heck the priority is. Every day, it's something different. Like, I just don't know what I'm going to get from you, right? Are you happy today? Are you sad today? Do you want to, like, nano-manage this thing I'm doing? Or do you want to be hands-off but give me a bigger quota without asking me if we can sustain it, you know? And so it really was almost like the anti-goal was my initial journey of figuring out what great leadership looks like. As you set off on that path, I was amazed by how many incredible leaders are on team Dennis. Meaning, I asked somebody, how does Dennis know these leaders? How does he know all these great, incredible leaders? And the thing that kept emerging was that you were so deliberate about seeking out people that had done the things that you want to do. Let's take that one layer further. How did you find those people? When you get to 50 million of ARR, let's just say. And it's the first opportunity where it's like, all right, maybe we should top this guy. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> I think it was probably earlier, at least in my head yeah. it was earlier. Yeah. But. yeah, like where you have the feeling of, okay, I've plateaued as this version of Dennis and I need to get over the hump. 
And the only way to get over the hump is to go learn from other people that could teach me, like, what does this next version need to be? How did you go about that process? Slash, is that a fair characterization of your kind of mindset? That's an exceptionally fair characterization. Yeah, it's like you're in my head. (laughs) Look, I tend to be very focused on outcomes. And, you know, I worked backward from that outcomes of like, okay, well, if I'm going to save myself and be able to continue to stay on this ride, I got to learn and I got to learn from the wisdom of others. And then, you know, there's not that large of a universe of these people. And so it's almost like, you know, a go to market or a sales and marketing motion, like a target account selling, right? Of like, okay, well, who are these humans? And how can I get an opportunity to connect with them? And when I connect with them, how can I make it meaningful for them, right? Because I'm not going to get the second meeting if the first one wasn't good. And Bessemer was incredibly helpful, right? I mean, they were like my first stop of like, hey, Y'all know anyone that would like spend a minute to like help me because I could use the help, you know, and they were great and they made a lot of different connections. And then you just start asking other people. You're like, hey, in addition to you, is there anyone else you think is really exceptional? And it gave me a lot of opportunity to kind of pattern match. And so, for example, like I really admired LinkedIn. Right. It was a different kind of business, but I thought like they were really people centric. They had built a business that was enduring and meaningful. And there seemed to be something in the water there. And so I just started trying to figure out like Brian Frank, who I think has been, I know yep. has been on your show, yep. um, is exceptional. He also felt like one of those more unconventional, like, how did you get to where you are, Brian? Yeah. And so we had a really great conversation. He was super helpful. Can, and, I, can I pause you? Of course. How did you find Brian? Bessemer. So you reached out to them and you said, I want someone with X, Y, and Z. And they came back to you and said, here you go. Bessemer did more than come back and say, here you go. I mean, they made the introductions. They were thoughtful around like, well, what are you trying to learn? I mean, they really went above and beyond. And, yeah. Uh, they made a lot of introductions. And let me ask you in a different way. If you didn't have the conduit of a big VC to help you access these people, let's say you're someone on your team today that doesn't have maybe the ability to get to those folks, right? They're not the C-level executive. Maybe they're the IC on your team right now that I saw sitting out there, maybe the the gal that said this is her first tech job. How would you go about finding mentorship for what the job should be then? Well, I mean, I think it's still the same journey. Look, I think you've actually done this. I've heard you talk about this on the podcast. So you're like, you know what? This person's really impressive. And I just dropped him a note and was like, you know, I'm really impressed by what you've done. I'd love to have a conversation. And so I would tell that I see, do that. You know, I also think that So much of the wisdom today, more so than ever, is out there in the world, right? And so I think mentorship is one way to learn and grow, but it's not the only way. And so I think I would also encourage that person. What I've tried to do is like, well, what is the outcome? Like, okay, if I want to win, I have to achieve this outcome. To achieve these outcomes, what are the things I need to be able to know how to do, the skills, the processes, whatever it is? And then where can I find that information? And almost always these days, especially with a podcast like yours, even the human psychology of what it's really like is out there for someone to learn. And so, you know, I think mentorship isn't the only thread. But, you know, I guess to answer your question, I would tell that I see first ask me. I'm happy to help and connect you to great folks. And people love doing this mentorship. Second, see if there's any associations, connections, et cetera. I was a you know public school kid. I went to UC Berkeley. Like, I started reaching out to folks through the Berkeley network and being like, hey, can anyone help me? You know, and try that angle. 
show up at events, right? I mean, there's all these great different conferences. So I think there are, you know, as I'm thinking out loud, answering your question, I think there are a number of ways that today you, you know, you don't have to have the privilege of, you know, one of the best venture firms, the world saying like, hey, we invested in you and we're willing to help you. I think you just have to have, you know, hustle and perseverance. When you talk about how much you believed in your CEO and founder, Tui, it seems to me like the only people that have made the ride through all of these different sections of company building, different moments of scale, is that the CEO and usually the founder was kind of their guardian angel. And what I mean by that is the belief that you had in them had to have been shared in you. There's no way that you, in my opinion, would have been able to do that without someone having probably a belief that they really shouldn't have had, like like rationally speaking. Totally. Right? Would have been easier to just top you. It would have been safer to top you. Do you agree with that? I do agree that it's safer, right? Because it's a conventional wisdom. But, you know, and this is something I've learned from Tui. There's risk in following the conventional path. And, you know, his was not a conventional path. I think, though, that certainly you're spot on, right? I mean, there has to be... um, Like he had so much trust in you. Yeah. And I think that I'm very lucky to have that. You know, I think the other thing... But I think you earned it. Well, so this is where I was going to go. It's funny. I, uh, I worked so hard to earn it. And I still work to earn it. Gosh, I think that, and by the way, this isn't just unique to my relationship with Tui. This clarity I had before Procore, and I think if you talk to any of my bosses, they would be like, you know what? There was someone who brought to bear the perspective that like outside of friends and family, the relationship you have with your boss is probably the most important one you have in your life. So what are you going to do about that? And are you going to take it for granted or are you going to manage up really well? And it's funny, this is actually something I learned from Mike Fernandez. He literally was like, listen, I can tell you really want to do this, this managing up thing, and you don't know how, so I'm going to teach you. And I had that skill ever since then. And relationships, they're built on trust. And trust is, you know, what's that saying? It's built in inches and lost in miles, something like that. And so I still to this day, do I have to do it? No, but I still to this day, if I'm meeting with Tui, I want to be prepared and I want to be prepared, not just in a way of like, do I know my numbers and, you know, am I delivering on what I said I was going to deliver? But, you know, am I making sure I present the information the way he likes to receive the information? Have I made sure that if this was something that he didn't have to be bothered with, that I exhausted the opportunity to work with my peers, just fix the freaking problem. Right. And so I think that, look, more luck and gratitude that he's had the belief he's had in me. Um, But certainly to the thread we're on, I think I've worked really, really hard. And it would be one of those things I would share to anyone like, hey, Dennis, how do I make my career? And it's like, well, in addition to absolutely smashing your numbers, being a wonderful human, take a lot of care in the relationship to your boss and know that it matters and really, really work at it and just be very mindful that it's fragile. Yeah, I think it's really good advice. There's a quote that Tui has said in the past We put our engineers in job site trailers to see the whites of the eyes of the people that they're working for. It's not just the salesperson that goes to the customer. I thought that was such a good lesson. And especially as a sales leader, how much does that give you the warm and fuzzies? 
Well, so much. I mean, look, as a sales leader, you want to think that, you know, even in spite of great product, I'm going to make my number and the best tech doesn't always win. And there's plenty of examples of that. But I want to have the best tech and we absolutely do. And I think there's just there's no substitute for that direct connection between an engineer and the folks that they're helping. And certainly, I think one thing that differentiated Procore from many of its competitors was we were obsessive about how to make customers successful. And I can give you an example of how this connects like yeah. with the technology. One of the hardest challenges I faced at Procore when I showed up was like, I mean, is this industry really going to change? Are they going to adopt technology? And so a huge part of what we had to do was just own it. The technology had failed construction and for good reason. And we spoke to that. The even more important thing was like, well, how are we different? And so what we went through with our customers with this journey of understanding like, well, how come technology has failed construction? And there were some things in the licensing and the business model, but there was a lot in the technology, right? And construction is a collaboration. It's a team sport. And so we started quickly figuring out like, okay, well, across all of technology, a lot of times it fails because it's shelfware, right? People don't use it. Well, what's preventing construction from using it? Is people just like idiots? No, that's absolutely not the case. Like our buyers are some of the most like best people I've ever seen at evaluating a tool. So how come the tool didn't work for them? It's like, well, you have all these different stakeholders in a construction project. Are you building quick value for them? Is it like the iPhone? You know, you can kind of open it up. You can use it really quick and you can get something awesome out of it. And are you doing that for all the different stakeholders? Because if you're not doing that for all the different stakeholders, well, they're not going to adopt the technology, right? And all of a sudden you're a collaboration platform trying to change how people build and no one uses it and you're failing. And so we started very quickly connecting engineers and saying like, look, you got to meet with the construction superintendent, the person on the job site. And you got to make sure that they get value out of the, the solution. Engineer, it's, it's on the engineers. The engineers, yeah. The Procore engineers. Procore engineers, yeah. yeah. Because you got to see that pain, right? There's no substitute for the experience itself. And you got to build something that they want to use right away that can translate to a great sales conversation. Because guess what? They're one of the most influential people in our sales cycle. They might not be the economic buyer, the person who spends and releases the money, but they've got a lot of influence. And we started looking at all the different stakeholders in the project and being like, well, what are their biggest pain points? And can we get to really quick time to value? And then we, and you know, Procore had this before I joined, but we really took it to the next level. We started realizing that, gosh, even if the technology is there and it's really easy to use, sometimes people just need help. And so we started innovating our support model and being like, you know what? Like, we're just going to help you if you call our support line. You don't have to be a named user. You don't have gone through training and certification. You're someone involved in this project that we want to make successful and you're having a challenge. You call us, we'll help you. And so, you know, working through that outcome of like, okay, if we want customers to get value from it, what's the biggest barrier? And adoption and usage was a huge barrier. And then really going deep, like first principle, why on like, why, why, why? And it was like, well, because the stuff wasn't purpose built for them and they're not getting value quickly. And there's not a lot of extra time in construction, right? I mean, the schedules are tight. The expectations are high. And we did that, I think, exceptionally well. You're literally flying engineers to construction sites Mm -hmm. to meet with the people building whatever they're building. We still do this. All the time. And is it an expectation? Like, do the engineers, do they know this? 
this is one of those things we've had to figure out how do we differentiate to attract and retain the best talent, right? Because like, that's the thing we've most tried to win on was getting the best talent so that we could deliver the best work. And that's actually one of our selling props is like, you're going to get to actually connect directly with customers and understand how is this solution going to better the world and what are the pain points? And you'll actually have a human that you can think of as you're building the software. And so absolutely, it's still one of the most important things that you know we do. Has there ever been a piece of advice from any of the leaders that you've had the opportunity to spend time with that changed your worldview on leadership? You know, there's a couple. I pause a little because I'm like, I don't know, is that really worth sharing? You know, we had a moment when I was working for Mike Fernandez. You know, that was my first job out of college. So it was, you know, very formative. And we're working on this deal and like, it just didn't feel right. What kind of where it was heading. And I remember going to Mike and it must've been like eight or nine o'clock at night. And I kind of had this like struggle, you know, conflicted look in my eyes. And Mike was like, dude, what's going on? I'm like, you know, there's this thing and like, it doesn't feel right. And he immediately was like, dude, dude, it doesn't feel right. We're not doing it. You will never get your ethics or integrity back if you compromise them at all. So no, we're not doing it. And that has carried me to this day. Of my many mistakes and shortcomings, I can hold my head up high and be like, you know what? I've always tried to do the right thing and I've never compromised my ethics or integrity. You know, the other bit of advice that I think was really, really meaningful for me was just being the smartest person, being even the hardest working person, that's not going to be the thing that is the thing you will most cherish later in your life. The thing you will most cherish later in your life is like, was I that teammate that like when people think of, they smile? And they're like, yeah, you know, he was something. And I don't know if you got that in your interviews chatting with folks. And that was really meaningful advice because it's giving me a lot of clarity on like, how do I leave people feeling? And like, what is the effect? That really matters. And so I'd say two really big bits of advice. One was, you know, Mike. So I'm like, just do the right freaking thing. If it doesn't feel right, don't do it. And the other was just like, be the team member that like absolutely everyone wants to work with. And that when they think of you, They don't think of like hard work. They don't think of, you know, winning. Like, yeah, sure, those things matter. But they think of the joy they got in working with you. When people tell me stories about you, most of the stories end in one tale or another of how you went so far out of your way to do something for them. And there's sometimes small examples, like when they would step into your office, I think this office probably back in the day, And you'd have some version of some eclectic food that you would (laughs) insist on them eating when they stepped into your office. It's actually very Persian of you. To maybe a bigger example would be if you heard that one of your leaders was flying around and had an inefficient route, you would go to their EA behind their back and I don't mean that maliciously, obviously, and change their entire travel schedule just so that you could save them two hours or an hour and a half. That's incredible. And those are the stories that people tell me that you leave behind when there's so much else going on in a given day and there's so many competing priorities starting with how do I hit my number and how do I go hire more great people What is the flicker that says, you know what, I need to go make sure that Jane or John has a good travel schedule today? 
You know, it's not always travel schedule. Um, Small and and uh, look, I'd love to say it's purely selfless. So, you know, maybe that's what I tell myself. In addition to, look, relationships really matter. And I think you can't care too much about the people that you support, right? And so, you know, and I almost pause on this question because I think what you're asking is like, hey, man, when things are so absolutely ridiculously crazy, like, and let me see if I'm repeating back the question, like, how do you find the time for this? Totally. Right. Okay. So if that's the question, I mean, because even if people have all the time in the world, they're still not doing this. I care about people, you know, and it kind of goes back to your question on like, hey, man, were you scared of getting topped? And like, what do you do with your insecurity? And you're like, okay, well, people are the beginning end of every opportunity. And honestly, like when you think back, not even on resume, but on eulogy, or you think about health, how clear is it today that human connection and loneliness or not having it is one of the most important determinants of your health? And then you start to think through like, how lucky am I to be able to do something, make someone's day better? Plus like culture starts at the top. So if I'm setting a culture of like, we care about people and like, look, those were the easy ones, you know, the harder ones are like, you know, what do you do when someone's got, you know, a kid in the hospital and they're going through something? Like, how do you find the right way to care for them and show up great for them? Those stories are the easy ones of like, gosh, really? Is this person about to spend two hours on the wrong route? And, you know, I'm fortunate, truthfully, that like we have resources, right? And over time, you start to realize, okay, like this is a thing I do, right? As I look at people's experience, I look at the things that can make it a lot better for them. And I want to be able to do things for them. So you start to hire people who help you do that. And, you know, so much of the stuff behind the scenes, I mean, that's administrative support. That's a culture of people saying like, hey, there's this thing and we can make it way more rad and awesome for that person. And I'd be remiss not to say like, you know who I learned that from? Tui. Because <laughs> he's so good at that. And honestly, this office that we're in is an example. I, you know, when I first joined the company, uh, I was like, I'm not taking an office. I'm sitting on the floor. You know, I love the hum of a sales floor and that's how I'm going to learn. And I, you know, be with the front lines and, you know, all that sort of stuff. And then I was kind of like, hey, uh, this office is pretty rad and uh, got a lot of one-on-one meetings. And, you know, I would have never asked for it, right? But Dewey found a way to give it to me. This has become so innate in what I do and so in line with the way I want to win through people, through their experience, through building relationships built on trust and care that I actually haven't done this reflection. You kind of hear me doing it out loud with you now. Um, and I, you know, I, I probably need to be a lot more honest and be like, yeah, Tui's pretty good at that. And I borrowed that from him. Yeah. One other thing that you're also pretty good at that maybe you borrowed from him or maybe you borrowed from someone else, or maybe it's just innate is you have a reputation of being quite a thoughtful gift giver. <laughs> and this is, again, I know it's kind of hard to talk about yourself in these ways. I'm curious, is there a gift that you've given to someone that you're most proud of that you think maybe I can couch in that was so unique to that person, to their circumstance. Or maybe a moment in time for that person that you felt like deserved recognition that others would not realize. Well, you know, it's interesting. I am... Darn it. I feel like this is an opportunity for me to like take a victory lap and I got to give the wind to Tui over I'm here. I'm trying to give you a victory uh, no, lap. No, I know. I know. Uh, and I appreciate it. But, you know, like truth is one of those things I'm constantly seeking. Dude, our IPO was such a special moment for Tui. He had built this business. He had been 20 plus years into it. It had a lot of moments of potential insolvency and all these different things. And I remember leading up and the gift is for my parents. So let me just sure, say that right, yeah. and then I'll tell you the story. I remember leading up to the IPO 
And I was like, oh my gosh, I mean, talk about imposter syndrome and like, this is an important moment and, you know, we got to nail it and I'm overseeing marketing and I'm like, gosh, you know, marketing, like, they're such a great org. Like, how do I make sure we nail this? And we have customers and we have partners there and we have investors there and, you know, it's Chewy's special day. And I'm like obsessing truthfully over like, okay, how do I make this day because it's a magic moment? Great. And we kept having these syncs with Tui and like, I was like, okay, and then this, and like, how does that look? And like, he's helpful, right? He's like, okay, well, what about this? What about that? We're going through. And, you know, I remember a couple, you know, maybe a month leading up to it. He started asking, he's like, that's awesome. What can I do to make the day great for you? I was like, I'm good, man. I just want the day to go good. Like, you know, kind of that anxious mindset, right? And I was like, I'm good. I'm good. I didn't appreciate how meaningful the IPO in hindsight, it seems so clear, like, duh. But I didn't appreciate how meaningful the IPO is going to be for my parents. Right. And it's me and my brother up there. And, you know, we took a chance on this business and look at how far it's come. And, you know, they're immigrants and, you know, we didn't grow up of means. They sacrificed everything to give us an opportunity to have education, to put us in a, you know, environment like Silicon Valley, where these tech stories are rare, right? Not every industry does this. And I remember Tui called and he was like, hey, so I made a change. Like, uh, I mean, you're the boss. You can change whatever you want. But like, uh, what would you do? And he was like, I put your parents on the balcony. Like, what? He's like, yeah, I want your parents on the balcony. Of the stock exchange. Of the stock exchange. And the way my parents, like, I mean, I'm almost tearing up. Like, I haven't thought about this question. (sighs) The joy they had, you know, the pride, like that gift for them was as great a gift as I've given. And, you know, as I'm thinking out loud again on your question, I think the best gifts I've given are all experiences. Though, you know, I mean, I've tried to do a lot of different things that just make people set up better, you know, maybe structurally. I remember how happy the SDRs were where we got them all. And this was early days before it was trendy, like standing desks and the footboards where they could balance and like, you know, it's a hard job. And they were like, mm-hmm. yeah, like mm-hmm. that was a really great gift. Yeah. I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, you did. I think you're being modest, but that was, um, I got goosebumps. I have one more kind of area that I'm super curious with you on. I could actually literally sit here and watch the sunset and go for hours. I'm looking forward to just doing it over dinner, maybe not on the mic tonight, but you are engaged now. First of all, congrats. You're getting married in a couple months, right? Uh, March, yeah. It's incredible. Here? Yeah, here in Santa Barbara, yeah. Of course. I mean, it's probably going to be like on the the lawn right here where I just saw the Mexican lunch happening. It's going to be on the beach and with the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Congrats. Do you think that part of you... and Maybe this is a very personal question, but for the longest time, I've believed that I can't let someone else into my life because my life is so oriented around my work. And it's not that I don't want someone in my life. It's that I feel like I can't be the person that I want for that person because of the amount of calories Emotionally, physically, just all my energy is just harnessed into this thing. And over time, I think that's changed and evolved a bit. Although admittedly, I still feel that way and I get nervous about it. I'm wondering, did you ever feel that? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I, uh, you know, I think it was Jay Leno actually that said, marry the person you wish you could be. And, you know, for me, I feel so fortunate to have found a life partner who is absolutely the person I wish I could be. And I say that in the context of like, 
she cares so much about what I care about. And like for me, work is a it's a calling, right? It is a way to impact the world. It is a way to learn and grow. It is a way to build relationships. And I think it's about finding the right partner and the right alignment. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, I've heard you ask this a different question, but I think it's got a similar underpinning of like, what's it like for the family of the CEO who's on the road all the time and working nonstop and you know, I think that like she is so good about supporting me in my dreams. She is so good about, and actually maybe this is probably the more meaningful answer. Uh, yeah, it's forced me to change, right? She calls me out on my stuff and she's like, you know, dude, I know you were really here, but you weren't really here because you didn't sleep that great. You seem stressed and your head somewhere else. And like, I tell you what, how about we talk about work for a little bit? She's way smarter than me. She actually has a background in tech as a product manager and product leader. And so it's funny because actually when we started dating about five years ago, I started getting a lot smarter about the product questions I would ask um, and we would talk shop. And so I think like, look, she's my best friend. And you know, when you have a best friend like that, you get to spend the time with them, but certainly you have to evolve and grow. I mean, you can't lack situational awareness and be like, Hey, you know, I used to fly out always Saturday or Sunday, right? If I'm going to Australia, I'm flying out Saturday and, you know, I would get back late Friday night and then I get on the road again and, you know, it forces you to learn better habits. And truthfully, I think she's made me an exceptionally better leader because how are we going to scale a company to thousands of people if I have that narrowness? And how do you really care for people when so much of their situation is so different from mine? Yeah, I can learn, I can ask, I can iterate, I can evolve, I can, but there is no substitute for like, yeah, I know what it's like when you have to show up for your partner and you have to show up great. I'm happy for you. I do always wonder if that fear is overblown in our heads. Meaning, you know, I go back to the quote of 20-year-old Dennis on Berkeley campus. That Dennis, he just didn't know yet that actually he thought he was optimizing for peak performance, but he was actually not. It was a less holistic version of the person that he wanted to be. I relate it similarly to this conversation about finding someone in your life, a life partner. You know, it's like we think, I think, that it's taking energy away. But in fact, I think in some ways, the great leadership is just the transfer of energy and enthusiasm from one person to another. And I think if someone else can fill your cup to then let you distribute that cup and energy to others, I think it's a really powerful thing. Yeah, I would say with pretty strong conviction that, you know, 20-year-old Dennis didn't have it right. Um, And that my means and methods for realizing peak performance were well-intentioned but misguided, you know? And I've learned a lot about relationships, trust and commitment and conflict. And I think relationships are everything to business and people and leadership. She's like so darn smart. Like the full gratitude I get to have to share that experience and have a trusted partner to talk things through. Certainly, I can better empathize as a leader. Oh, my gosh. I, I, I mean, the number of examples, Jubin, I could give you of 20-year-old Dennis who was like, yeah, I'm exhausted and I'm going to do an all-out sprint because I only have 15 minutes and aerobic exercise matters. And, you know, now 37-year-old Dennis is like, okay, well, let's, you know, it's kind of like the Whoop CEO. I thought to, said this really well. You know, you have that Whoop score and it's like, first off, what contributed to it? That's worthwhile exploration. Two, what are you going to do about it? Because usually what you shouldn't do when you're in the red on your Whoop is do an all-out sprint. And so I think it's the same thing as 20-year-old Dennis. Like, did I really, in order to get the success I got at Berkeley, have to do those hours? No. I mean, it's one of those things I wish I would have learned sooner and better. 
And, you know, I think the data is pretty clear on this at this point. I think even Silicon Valley, you know, there's enough articles in the news now of like, it used to be a rite of passage for founders not to sleep. And now people are bragging. I think these are even what the headlines say. Yeah, we've like almost gone too far to the other extreme, like four day work weeks. Yeah. And I I would tell you, I think we we maybe have, right? Because balance is such an important part of life and leadership. And yeah, I mean, I think there's a balance between I got to be so careful on sleep that I can't, you know, enjoy a late dinner with you tonight if that's where our evening takes us. But certainly, look, my own truth and what I wish I would have told, you know, what would current Dennis should have told younger Dennis, uh, which, gosh, it sounds like such a weird way to speak is, yeah, yeah, sure. You can't get to that outcome in a better way. And if this is the way you get to the outcome, like, is that what you really want to teach the next generation of folks? Because you know what? When you don't sleep, you don't feel as good. And don't you want people to feel good? Don't people do better when they feel better? And so, yeah, I I think 100% that, you know, the notion of like, you got to be single-mindedly focused and that means uh, you can't have a life partner while building this. And you, by the way, have some guests who have taught me a lot on this, like Mike Gamson. So, you know, probably for another day at another conversation, but I could not, you know, plus a thousand, your comment there. Really special way to end it. I close all these the same. The first, and I'll let you speak on behalf of Procore here. Are you hiring? Is Procore hiring? I don't know if Dennis is hiring per se, but are there any key roles? We are hiring. We post all our roles on our website. You know, I think the roles that, uh, you know, are most meaningful for me personally are leadership roles. And we are hiring across the board in almost every department, if not every, as well as every region. Um, And so we post all our jobs on our website and I would love to see folks go there and apply and, you know, maybe famous last words, but I'm also just Dennis at Procore.com. And I find helping to get talent is one of the greatest joys that I have. So I'm personally would be honored and glad to help anyone who's looking at Procore. Um, The other thing, since I have the moment on this that I couldn't not say is construction has so many amazing jobs. Like the jobs in construction are epic and the labor shortage facing construction is arguably the single biggest issue our customers face that prevents them from building the schools, hospitals, and roads, you know, the places we live, work, and play. And so please, please, please consider the jobs in construction. They're awesome. I love that shout out. Last one. When you hear the word grit, what does it mean to you? Grit to me personally means never quitting, working super hard, being an absolutely awesome human, and doing that in the hardest of moments so that somehow I find a way to win. Dennis, thank you. It's been an honor. That's it. Thanks for tuning in. We've had some pretty amazing guests in the past and we'll have some pretty amazing guests in the future. I just really appreciate you all spending the time. 